Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greatest challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, Vladimir Putin put on display his ability to rattle off facts about Russia's successes during his annual phone-in on Thursday. But just how impressed was his audience? His main task was to show that he can listen, he hears the grievances of the people. And that's why the first and the most boring probably part of the, of the direct line was about social issues. We'll put the question to Alexander Baunov of the Carnegie Think Tank. And later, prosecutors in the Netherlands have charged three Russians and a Ukrainian in the downing of flight MH17 in 2014, which claimed the lives of 298 passengers and crew. In the end, over the years, Russia is coming up with new stories. But every time you make up a new story, of course, your trustworthiness is diminishing, even for the people who actually believed you all the time. We'll speak with Dutch journalist Herk van Denenkamp about whether this is a watershed moment in the search for justice. First up, Putin's annual phone-in, when he fields questions from concerned citizens for up to hours at a time, live on television, is usually a highly orchestrated and highly predictable affair. But this year, with living standards falling, protests over trash disposal escalating, and his approval ratings plummeting, the president was under pressure to come up with answers that would sound more convincing than in previous years. Joining us on the line is Alexander Balnov, senior fellow at the Carnegie Moscow Center and editor-in-chief of Carnegie.ru. Alexander, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. The phone-in has just wrapped up. Do you think the president did enough to persuade Russians that the economic health of the country is improving? I'm not sure this was his main task. His main task was to show that he can listen, he hears the grievances of the people. That's why uh, the, the first and the most boring probably part of the, of the direct line was about social issues. It's clear that he would try to stress that the program of uh, economic program of his current term is about May orders, so-called national projects. And uh, my impression is that exactly before the same now during the direct line, he was not able to show, to persuade people, just to show them this huge, this massive state spending, about $500 billion that is uh, basically going on and uh, will continue until 2024 and further, so in the next five years. And that's, uh, that's something astonishing for me because you spent more state money for economic growth and social agenda than ever. It's a dozen times more than the World Cup last summer costed or uh, the Sochi Olympic Games. So it's really very big, massive state spending. And you talk, talk about it, not so little, but you cannot convince people that the people is an object of this massive spending, despite the fact that the first questions and answers were social. Compared to previous years, what struck you about Putin's performance today? 
It's a ritual. The ritual has some standing elements that repeats from year to year. The length is usual. It's around four hours. Basically, it's a normal length. And then uh, what is clear for me that in the first hour, he was not in a very good form, uh, probably because he was too ready for the first questions that happens to a student that is too ready to answer the, the, the questions on the exam. So the first six, six questions were about social things, social problems, and they were almost for sure directly came from sociological uh, polls and numbers. So poverty, wages, medicine, housing, housing for families with more than two children or three children, modest capital, things like this. He was very prepared for this, and that, that's why he was bored. And then the questions came with more random, so more challenging way, and that's what, that was for him something uh, more challenging to answer. And uh, in the first hour and something, there was no phrase, no, not, nothing tweetable, no, no phrases that could strike the audience or make a headline or could be tweeted, uh, but we had plenty of uh, of such things uh, in the last two hours, especially the very last mm. one. Ahead of the phone-in on Thursday, we saw the, the Kremlin ostensibly release a number of high-profile detainees mm-hmm. from independent media, from opposition groups, from human rights organizations. What signal do you think this was meant to send just days ahead of the phone-in? Well, it's not about direct life. I suppose that this liberalization, or I don't know, that saw is related more with the, the generally with the 2024 problem. The Kremlin doesn't see any reason. The administration of president doesn't see any reason to alienate big groups of uh, big and influential group groups of uh, citizens like journalists or uh, artists. Uh, in case of Serebrenikov or even human rights activists, why not? So it's for me not directly linked to this bounded to this direct line. Lastly, um, we've seen a number of sort of Kremlin watchers describe the the format, the phone-in, mm-hmm. as sort of increasingly stale, unconvincing. Is there any to, any reason to believe that the Kremlin might opt to phase it out or try something different? Or does Putin just enjoy the format too much? He's partly enjoying it as any big uh, occasion on, uh, when he answers questions in a quite comfortable situation because you understand that the situation of uh, press conferences at home or direct lines at home were, are quite comfortable to him. It's a ritual, and in 20 years it became a, re- a yearly ritual, so to, it's, it's just impossible to drop. It is his duty. Does he enjoy it or not anymore? That doesn't have a decisive meaning, because if you drop it now, after 20 years, it, it, it would be some signal so everybody would go asking themselves and trying to interpret what does what this uh, symbol, what this message could mean. Whether you have the direct line or don't, you are discussed. So if you drop the direct line, it's something. It means that you have something bad about your health, or you are uh, embarrassed with your rating, or you are embarrassed with some other political difficulties. And uh, why there's no reason to do this. You just create a problem of nothing. So, of course, he follows this ritual. And uh, it will continue as long as he is in power. Alexander, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. 
On Wednesday, Dutch prosecutors charged three Russians and one Ukrainian with murder in the downing of Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 over eastern Ukraine in 2014. Igor Girkin, Sergei Dubinsky, Oleg Pulatov and Leonid Kharchenko. The three Russian men have various links to their country's intelligence services, and all three of them served in the military. Their trial, which they are unlikely to attend given that Russian law prohibits its citizens from being extradited, begins in March next year in the Netherlands. Joining us on the line is Dutch journalist Herd van Denenkamp, a reporter at NewsHour television program. Herd Jan, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. You're welcome. In your view, is this a watershed moment in the MH17 investigation? No, it's an important moment, but I don't think it's a breakthrough. Um, um, it's 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 an important moment for the relatives, lots of people here in the Netherlands who were eager to hear something from the investigation. Uh, but the main questions are still open. Uh, who shot MH17? Who ordered that? Um, who was responsible for the transport of the weapon, the book system? Who was all in all responsible? We don't know. And I think if this investigation, uh, to judge if this will be in a success, uh, I think uh, we can only do that if, if they find these people. And till now, they didn't. Ahead of this week's revelations, you tracked down the commander of the 53rd Battalion, which was responsible for the, the Buk missile system, which uh, is believed to have shot down MH17. Can you describe how you tracked down Sergei Muchkaev and what that interaction was like? Yeah, we decided to go to Kursk uh, because that's where the uh, 53rd Brigade is based. And we went there on a day we were sure that lots of military would be on the streets. It's on Victory Day celebration. And and also for us, it was, of course, in a way, a bit of a confusing moment because lots of people are then on the street uh, commemorating uh, the war, the sacrifices the Russians uh, have made uh, uh, to win over Germany. Uh, but for us, it looked like the only opportunity to actually speak to servicemen of the 53rd Brigade and to uh, speak to Muchkaev because in the past he was always present at these events. In the end, we saw him, we tried to ask him uh, a couple of questions. Uh, he completely ignored us uh, when he heard we were from Dutch uh, television um, and and in, in the end, we didn't hear so much from him. But I work for television and and we also need pictures, of course, of, of the brigade, of the people who are maybe involved and maybe we can use them later on uh, in our investigations. Was it frustrating to be in such close proximity to individuals who are believed to be re- directly responsible, but not to be able to to garner any new information from them or to, to be able to hold them account or to, to have them answer your questions? Yeah, of course it is. Uh, I mean, when I showed uh, this report to a relative uh, last week in our program, um, he was very emotional because he said, yeah, I mean, this guy actually knows probably what has been going on. Maybe he's not responsible, but he's the commander of the 53rd Brigade. The investigation says that the book is, uh, is it belongs to his brigade. He should know what happened. And he can fly to the Netherlands and tell everybody in 10 minutes what's, what's been going on. And here in the Netherlands, are hundreds of people investigating this thing uh, are not able to talk to him, are not able to travel to the east of uh, Ukraine and trying to figure out what actually happened. So it's kind of frustrating. And I was v- very close to him and I didn't get an answer at all. So it was, was pretty uh, frustrating. In a way, it also felt 
like you're in, yeah, how you say in English, um, we say in the Netherlands, we say the mouth of the lion. Yes. I don't know if you have this expression in English, yes, but of course, um, uh, because, I mean, you know that not only Muchkaya, but probably a lot of more, more people uh, from the second brigade. Uh, we saw actually a lot of them or lots, but some of them uh, who took part in the, in the parade, um, you know, they know more and it's frustrating you don't hear it, yeah. Well, I, I think the fact that this is uh, a national tragedy in the Netherlands, I think, has probably slipped slipped from the consciousness of some uh, some Western audiences um, who are perhaps interested academically in what happened or logistically um, five years later. But of course, 193 Dutch citizens died. Can you tell us how families um, of the victims or their loved ones are responding to the news of these uh, of these criminal proceedings? Yeah, I can. I mean, in in when when the press conference was held at uh, one o'clock um, in the morning, the relatives were informed, and uh, the prosecution and the police uh, did that already from the start. They always informed the relatives first. They. Uh, last week, they first informed the relatives that there would be a press conference, that they would be informed first. Um, so um, relatives know firsthand what is the outcome of the investigation, or at least what the police and the prosecution wants uh, uh, to say at that uh, moment. And when they came out, um, then most of them were really relieved. Uh, I think uh, after five years of waiting, they actually were happy to hear that there were people involved, that they are going to be prosecuted, that there will be a trial, that there will be people who are being held to account. Um, although everybody expects that they won't be there, at least the prosecution has the possibility to lay out the case and people are able to hear actually what kind of information is available uh, in order to prosecute the people. And in the end, of course, court has to decide whether there's enough information to charge them uh, and and to, pr- uh, to, to f- uh, convict them for murder, which is quite a heavy hmm. charge, of course, considering that the, the prosecution also admits that they don't have the main figures and they don't have the people who actually shot or gave the order to shoot. Um, but still, people are very happy and most relatives I spoke to are very happy that this is going to happen now. Since uh, MH17 was shot down, the Russian government has offered any, any number of implausible alternative theories, uh, offering sort of scant evidence. But since the Joint Investigative Committee have have um, have been bringing more evidence to the table and amounting evidence of of uh, Russian responsibility, do you think this will make it more difficult for the Kremlin to to continue to deny involvement or just dismiss these allegations outright? I think yes. I mean, in in the beginning, of course, we heard the theory it were Ukrainian planes. And over the years, the story has also changed in, in Russia. There were quite a lot of people also in the Netherlands who still believed the theory of the planes that it were Ukrainian planes who actually shot MH17 uh, until um, until this week even. But if you looked at uh, Russian television yesterday evening, um, most of the reports were about that it wasn't a Russian book, but it was a Ukrainian book. So all the people actually believed the Russian stories over the last years that it was a Ukrainian plane should be very disappointed today that they hear it's not 
it, it weren't planes. Uh, it was actually a book. And of course, R- Russia is saying it's a Ukrainian book, but still they have to prove it. And, and until now, the theories they had about this Ukrainian book, we tried to verify them or we tried to verify them. We verified them and they uh, seemed to be and they turned out not to be correct. So um, in the end, over the years, uh, Russia is coming up with new stories. But every time you make up a new story, of course, your trustworthiness is diminishing, even for the people who actually believed you all the time. And I think over the years that maybe time helps and and in the end, truth will prevail. And there's so much information. I mean, all the information which was out there on Vkontakte and all the other social media in, in Russia about the convoy, about the soldiers who get actually the put on selfies on the Internet, the videos, etc. Uh, and Nove Gazeta had the reports about the documents. There's a mass of information and, of course, um, there will be a moment that probably also in Russia that can't be denied anymore and that there should be answers or at least that the rest of the world is thinking, okay, now you have to give an answer and if you don't, then we know what the answer is. In 2017, you went in search of one of the men who was charged yesterday, Sergei Dubinsky. Can you tell us a little bit about him and the impetus for your search for this guy? No, we did a, a long investigation uh, in, into this guy. We actually went to Ukraine. We went to the village where he was, uh, where he grew up. Uh, we went to the village where he lived actually shortly before uh, the whole conflict in Ukraine uh, started. So we spoke to relatives, we spoke to family. Um, and uh, in the end, we got a picture of who the guy was and what his, uh, what his position was. And we had the impression, uh, which was confirmed also by the leaked uh, telephone calls uh, or the leaked telephone calls, the telephone calls which were published by the the Ukrainian Secret Service, um, that he had an important role in uh, in the whole uh, transport of uh, the book. And in the end, we found out that he was kind of the leader of uh, the second department of an intelligence agency which was put up um, under the the leadership of uh, Strelkov. And... Dubinsky and his uh, second man, Pulatov, uh, they were very important in that. And in the end, it turned out that's also what uh, the Justice Department in, the, in, in this inst- in, in investigation into MH17 is uh, thinking. And that's why we went to his house. He lives in Rostov. Uh, we knocked on his door. He wasn't there. Uh, somebody answered um, and told us that uh, that we were not going to speak to Dubinsky. I saw a report of Radio Free Europe uh, a couple of years later, or a year later, I think, uh, where actually Dubinsky opened the door. He was at uh, at his house. Uh, also, he didn't say anything. And of course, uh, since yesterday, we know he denied all allegations. Herdian, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with the Moscow Times today. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. And to finish off, drivers in St. Petersburg encountered an unlikely genre of congestion on the roads over the weekend. A video circulating social media filmed from a passing vehicle showed a two-car pileup on a motorway outside of St. Petersburg, which was apparently caused by a family of ducks trying to cross the busy thoroughfare. In the video, the driver of the passing car hops out to stop traffic and make sure the ducks make it across safely. No ducks, humans, were injured in the incident. The cars, on the other hand, will need some repairs. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. 
Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on Putin's phone-in, MH17, and other oddities from across Russia. You'll also find details of the Moscow Times' new crowdfunding campaign there. So if you consume our independent reporting from Russia, please consider supporting it with cold, hard cash. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Pyotr Sauer, and thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. (laughs) 